Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, The Daily Signal's White House correspondent. And on this episode, we're going to, I'd say, re-explore the Electoral College because it has been uh, so much talked about recently. I know our initial episode of Right Side of History uh, was actually about the Electoral College, but since so many things have happened since that time, Fred, uh, I think we both thought it was it was best to, uh, I guess, re-examine this topic, I think, from a different perspective now that there has been such a push to get rid of this institution that's been part of this country's history. And a part of the show will actually uh, talk to somebody who literally wrote the book on the Electoral College, too. So uh, you have that to look forward to. But, Fred, I, I find this really interesting. I mean, uh, since the 2016 election, I think there's been a lot of calls, especially from a lot of progressive groups, to get rid of the Electoral College. I think there's a lot of bitterness because President Donald Trump won the election, although he didn't win, I guess you could say in quotes, the uh, national popular vote, which is the system that uh, many people want America to go to rather than what our system that I think seems to many to be quite arcane. It's uh, a state-based system. It's right. Not directly one man, one vote, so to speak. It's not purely democratic as some people want. Uh, but now there are some very serious efforts to get rid of this institution, which we've both written about. Right, Fred? Yeah. Uh, and uh, I had a piece just last week about the money behind the uh, National Popular Vote uh, Interstate Compact. Uh, and I hope folks will check that out on DailySignal.com. Uh, and it gets into uh, who's bankrolling this effort. Uh, actually, uh, Jonathan Soros's group is one of the uh, organizations behind it. The Tides Foundation, uh, which is a George Soros-funded group. Uh, the Stephen Silberstein Foundation, which is known for funding a lot of progressive causes. Uh, it 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 is uh, it's presenting itself as a bipartisan effort, but but the founder of it, uh, John Souza is is somewhat of a, a committed Democrat on this. Uh, that they, they do have a, uh, some Republican spokesmen out there who who have argued and, and, and I, I don't think their arguments are, are entirely um, without merit that uh, if you had a popular vote, the election that it would be a mistake to believe that a what we had in the popular vote previously would be the same popular vote under a uh, under a under our actual legal popular vote system in which right. – uh, because I think you would have a lot of Republicans turn out in a place like California. Yeah, I, I and, think that – I mean certainly I, I think that's, so forth. that's a reasonable argument. I mean I think that's – that's uh, we don't we don't know exactly how turnout will be if we mm. went to a national popular vote. I mean some of the problems that, for instance, uh, Hillary Clinton had in, in 2016 is to a certain extent – her strategy was based yeah. a little bit on turning out the popular she, vote. I mean, she, she yeah, made right, some right. mistakes um, there. Well, well yeah, the, this this has gone on, and in fairness, this has gone back and forth. Like after um, Al Gore uh, lost the popular vote to George, or uh, lost the Electoral College but won the popular vote, then Democrats were like insisted, oh, well, we would have won if, if there had not been an Electoral College. Um, and, and, and again, we don't know that because the campaign would have been much different. Uh, but that was the narrative after that. Uh, going forward, though, you had the blue wall. Hillary Clinton, as you said, she 
I think she sort of started to panic as the race started to tighten up, and there was a fear that, oh my gosh, Donald Trump might win the popular vote. We know there's no way he'll win the electoral college because that's just mathematically impossible. But he might win. <laughs> and so, so, so then her campaign wasted resources and. Uh, running ads in Chicago, New Orleans, other big uh, urban areas where she was going to win anyway, but she wanted to run up the the vote in these areas, Los Angeles and so forth, uh, where she didn't need to be when she should have been aiming in these battleground states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which she was sure to win. It is funny. It's like almost a case where you know somebody's playing uh, checkers when they should be playing chess. Right. I mean, that's. I mean, if you if you want to yes. make a comparison <laughs> right. here, right. Uh, you know, the, the way our system works is the electoral college. This is hardly a secret. This is hardly something that the campaign shouldn't have been very much aware of. Uh, I think that the Trump campaign. I, I mean, I think 2016 shows why mm-hmm. the electoral college is unique and to a certain extent. An advantage. I mean, President Donald Trump appealed to people in what people thought was the big blue wall in the Rust Belt, appealing to states mm-hmm. like Michigan and Pennsylvania and all these states that had gone blue for a very long time suddenly flipped. I mean, these were states that they weren't even just uh, battleground states. These were solidly blue states. And and it is about appealing to a cross section of the country as opposed to just a block or a enough of a majority as opposed to, you know, 50 plus one could be a majority that would sweep the entire country as opposed to a cross-section of support, which is what the Electoral College provides. Uh, and uh, Trump Trump and his people at least knew this. Trump, even shortly after winning, said he favored a national popular vote system, but more recently uh, has changed his view on that, just, just very recently, actually. Uh, this happens at a time when Almost every single Democratic presidential candidate uh, has come out for abolishing the Electoral College. That would actually require a constitutional amendment. What the uh, what this popular vote compact calls for is enough states to join this compact uh, in which they would um, if, if if there's enough states to equal 270 electoral votes, then all these states would give their electors to whoever wins the popular vote, national popular vote. Uh, that in itself would pro- probably almost certainly lead to litigation. Uh, I, I think there's no question about that. It, it does create some, I think, uh, unusual problems. I mean, trying to kind of do this run around the electoral college or the, I, I should say, the amendment process. Now, given there have been movements mm-hmm. to actually have a constitutional amendment to get rid of the electoral college, that's been more common. Right. But of course, the bar they've always is, failed. <laughs> they've always failed because right. the bar is very high. Even right. though the, the electoral college always, I think, in polls has always been slightly uh, disfavored by the American populace. Now, of course, the whole point of the electoral college is that it's not specifically democratic. Uh, I actually, it's funny. The polls actually went up slightly for the the electoral right. college after the 2016 election. Right. Uh, but but I, 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 I but I think the the pr- proper methods for this have always has always been uh, a constitutional amendment. I mean that's that is how you mm-hmm. change the constitution. This is a kind of a way I think it is unusual. I mean especially we've seen now well, thirteen states this, have signed on to this plus this, the District of Columbia. Yeah, yeah 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 it's up to one hundred eighty nine electoral votes uh, uh, altogether. So it's it's not very far from getting to the two seventy. It it could actually reach that, uh, and and that would that that would be critical. It's not going to reach it by twenty twenty, but maybe right. by twenty twenty four conceivably. Uh, I would like to talk about this year the states uh, that have already 
signed on to this. And, yes. And state legislatures. It is interesting. Uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Delaware, which almost seems like they're shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, Colorado in particular, because it's a, um, well, um, may, may, maybe less particular. It's a fairly large state, but but it is a battleground state. It has, it that leans blue, but it's, it's still, the candidates have traditionally gone there. Uh, battleground states have the most to lose from this. Uh, New Mexico probably has, of those three, has the most to lose because it is a small state and a battleground state uh, that has gone Republican in the past, at least. Um, and uh, the Electoral College was, of course, essentially there to protect small states like uh, New Mexico, give them a voice. Delaware, it, it's an entirely blue-leaning state, uh, but still, it's a very small state. The Electoral College is there to protect uh, small states like that. So it's it's almost nonsensical that those states would do this. Um, and I think maybe the thinking, particularly with Delaware, is that, uh, well, we're a blue state, so we know where our elector is going to go. Um, a big point on that is, uh, well, I'm from the state of Kentucky. You're from the state of California. There was a time when both of those states were battleground states. They're oh, not now. And it's laughable at this point to think, or the foreseeable future to think either of those states would be a battleground state. But we don't know that. Uh, and 2016, Donald Trump shocked America by winning Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. In 2008, uh, Barack Obama redrew the map when he won Indiana, Virginia, North Carolina. Virginia had been pretty much, uh, uh, had gone all the way to 1964 was the last time uh, that a Democrat won that state. Now, since Obama, they've consistently gone blue. But uh, Obama, you know, he, he and, and he won one electoral vote in Nebraska. That, right, that, right. that, that gets into another aspect. Nebraska and Maine, uh, they do it their own way, which, which is fine. I mean, under the current system, every state can award electors the way, however they choose to do it. Most states do a winner-take-all, which is a point of litigation as well because there's a liberal lawyer, Lawrence Lessig, um, right. who is suing to uh, get rid of the winner-take-all status. Right. Um, he's— not so keen on the national popular vote uh, interstate compact. Uh, he, I, I think his view is maybe move to a proportional system, which um, bring up California again. Right. Arnold Schwarzenegger entertained when he was governor there. He tried to push that a little bit, uh, as as I recall. Well, I mean, you know, it does make sense uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I, 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 particularly for a state like California, particularly because, yeah. of course, you do have it's a lot such of such a huge state. It is an, an enormous state, yeah. and it would be logical. Of course, a lot of states like to keep yeah. the power within their states. Right. If they, if their, if their electoral votes are in a solid block as opposed mm-hmm. to chopped up into portions, it does make okay. it even more appealing to try to win all. Yeah. It's you know, it's all or nothing. And for a lot of candidates, the appeal for getting all of those votes is an incentive to try to win those states. So I can understand I think, for the power of the states why they would do it. Now, I think proportional is, is quite reasonable, but I, if we're talking about just, the federalist system right. that we really, you know, I think is a big part of why the Electoral College exists. I mean, it exists to, you know, kind of get the interests of the whole country. It's there to protect this kind of – the state-based system that the United States has and having a presidential election that's based around that as well – I think is an important part of what makes the United States the United States. And I I think that is an important aspect here. I think, unfortunately, I think one issue that the the National Popular Vote Compact has, I think it's a very big one, is is that 
while in the Constitution it allows for states to choose their own system of selecting electors, essentially. But what's unusual about this is it could actually mean that a state could uh, throw its electors to voters outside of the state. Now that would be mm. that would be unique. I mean that that's something that has not happened before. Where let's say one state votes. 80% for a Democrat, the, the nation goes by a thin, thin popular majority mm-hmm. to a Republican. I mean, you're basically saying those votes don't matter, they don't count, and you're potentially disenfranchising voters in your state and throwing it to something else. I mean, that causes some serious complications, I think, with the 14th Amendment in particular of disenfranchising voters within within their state. I mean, this is a serious concern after the Civil War. Uh, a lot of southern states were disenfranchising uh, black voters in particular, trying to prevent that. I mean, you know, that could become with some very serious consequences. I mean, it's potentially that the courts could rule that disenfranchising their states could end up they could end up losing House votes, actually, uh, if that's if the courts yeah. decide that. So there's a lot of complications right. with this kind of national popular vote compact. And I think it does show how this movement to get rid of the Electoral College has become, in some ways, very much narrowly partisan. I think you've, you've definitely had people kind of go their own direction. I, I think this issue used to be a little more uh, I, I would say nonpartisan. There were a lot of Republicans who wanted to get rid of the Electoral College, a, lot of Democrat, mm-hmm. a few Democrats who wanted to keep it. Now, I think now right. things are definitely polarized, yeah. where right, most right. Republicans and conservatives want to keep the Electoral College. Democrats are against that, I guess, uh, at this yeah. point. Right. Yeah, I mean that that might have been different if 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 Trump had won the popular vote and lost the electoral yeah. college. I, I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think as a principle, though, I mean, looking beyond what party it helps, uh, as you said, we are the United States, which means states should have a say in this. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, and, I, you and, know, to to kind of, and, and we'll talk a little later uh, with the, an author. I think we're going to have on who can really explain. The Electoral College. But, I mean, it, it really fundamentally comes down to – I mean, if the founders didn't predict everything that would happen with American presidential elections, for sure. There's a lot that they just – they didn't predict. But I think that the critical element of the Electoral College that is what is under attack today is this kind of federal-based system where you, you are trying to get the interests across the nation of states in particular and the people the people voting. And, and that is pretty democratic. I think this the idea that it's totally – it's both not entirely democratic, but it's not non-democratic. I mean, after all, Americans vote for their electors in their states in pretty democratic elections within their states, uh, within those polities. So it's not entirely demo- anti-democratic, but it also isn't just you know this mass kind of – I like to use this term. It's a plebiscite of the, of the United States. It doesn't just throw it in as a mass. You know, We are a, a nation of many, many different states, and those states have – very different interests, even ones that may politically be, you know, both blue states, they could have potentially very different interests and mm-hmm. different ideas from those voters. Maybe one is more rural. Maybe one uh, has different kind of, uh, you know, important industries that matter. And, and based on, you know, a, a West Virginia has the coal industry. A lot of those voters may be Democrats, but they're concerned about the coal industry being uh, under attack. So you do have these different interests, which obviously goes into play when you're selecting a president of the United States. Yeah, all right. Yeah, and uh, something I did want to talk about, uh, and that is, um, well, first of all, uh, do you want to upend the entire system over something that has upset people 
just five times in American <laughs> history. And, 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 and that is something I did want to talk about these these five occasions, which I think are largely much ado about nothing uh, because um, um, I, I wrote about uh, all these uh, in my book, Tainted by Suspicion, which I hope everyone will check out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. <laughs> There's my plug. But uh, um, Tainted by Suspicion again. Uh, the uh, in 1824 was the first time this had happened, right? And uh, that was uh, John Adams, Andrew Jackson, um, uh, Henry Clay ended up deciding when it went to the House. Uh, what people were upset about was not so much about the popular vote, uh, electoral college split. Uh, uh, Jackson actually came out after election day with a plurality in both, but right. then the those what, what was left over was shifted. To Adams and in the House, actually, a situation um, where right. the Electoral College didn't decide an election right. because there were right. not uh, there wasn't a majority. Yeah. I think that's actually an interesting thing yes. because yeah. you know that's kind of unusual where you don't have an actual majority winning the Electoral College. Right? Actually, I think the Electoral College is seemingly it's a more cut and dry system than the one that elections going to the House of Representatives, which right. I think is much more confusing. Right. Yeah, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and certainly uh, so, certainly something that leaves the public much more suspicious uh, in that case if it goes to the House. Uh, it's uh, That that was decided. But but as, as far with regard to the uh, popular vote in that case, if people are going to refer to it even as one of the five cases, a lot of states – in 1824, we're not yet allowing voting at that point. I mean, popular voting in a presidential election was just sort of a new thing. Uh, it was part of the uh, – uh, we, we talk about Jacksonian democracy. Uh, democracy was kind of an, an in-trendy thing, uh, popular democracy, uh, with the Jackson movement. Jackson Court sort of wrote in on it, I think. Yeah. And um, uh, New York, for example, and a lot of northern states uh, that would have – Definitely gone to Adams, I think. Uh, would have definitely voted in high numbers for Adams. Uh, did not did not have popular voting at that point. And, and that's one point about the Electoral College in general. Uh, states can decide how to award their electors however way they want. They don't even have to have elections if they don't want to. Yeah, I, I but, find uh, it actually interesting in a time where you could say our, de- our elections right. were the least democratic. Right. We had presidents like... George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, and James Madison, and James. I mean, we actually had some of our greatest presidents, <laughs> right. you could say. Right. I mean, certainly with, with yeah. them like Washington, when it was less democratic. I think yeah. some of the arguments that we simply inject more democracy into the system, you know, yeah, results w- and right. good things will follow. Right. That That's not necessarily the case. I mean, the founders were concerned about they wanted to get – the best leaders, mm-hmm. and oftentimes democracy is one element of finding those leaders, right. but it shouldn't be the the beginning and the end. I right. mean, it shouldn't be just because the, the people have spoken doesn't mean they'll make necessarily the right choice. They yeah. understood that there are those complications, and they wanted to avoid things like mob rule, where democracy can be actually become quite tyrannical and vicious, yeah. uh, the worst kind of tyranny. Yeah, and um, 1876 is the other example people point to. Some people, after that, um, people were— Marching in the streets saying Rutherford B. Hayes was illegitimate. He was a Ruther fraud and uh, <laughs> say Tilden or blood. Uh, the fact is uh, Tilden won the popular vote by a pretty significant amount. But it was not a legitimate win of the popular vote because that, that, that went actually to a uh, commission of the, of the Senate and House members and Supreme Court members that decided 
uh, and sent that to back a recommendation back to Congress. And, but uh, but there was math. There was real legitimate voter suppression. I mean, not yes. not the voter suppression people use as a talking point yes. today. There was legitimate voter suppression in the South. This was post Civil War, uh, just eleven years after it ended, um, and uh, we you know. We don't actually know who won the popular vote, uh, uh, and I I think uh, if 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 you did have a uh, real count of who should have won those states that were in dispute, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, I think uh, Rutherford B. Hayes probably did legitimately win that election. Well, in some ways, I, I, the Electoral College, uh, yes, the, absolutely, there was definitely voter suppression at the time. In some ways, the Electoral College. Uh, helps get around that because states that, for instance, you know, you have some states at the time that suppressed large portions of the vote. You still only get your amount of electoral college votes. I mean, you can't suppress the national popular vote. Essentially, I mean, that's what I think what we kind of have danger happening right now, where you have states uh, in, in the modern context, try, like uh, for instance, I believe it's New Jersey is one of them mm-hmm. that's trying to strip uh, President Trump off the ballot. I mean, obviously right. that makes a huge difference. That suddenly, right. if you have a Washington national popular state is vote, doing the same. They're past one other chamber, right? At least. Suddenly, that makes a difference in the national popular vote. Whereas before. The electoral college votes are the electoral college votes. Right. You know, they'll have if they have three votes, they'll have three votes. If there's suppression or not, you know, it, it won't have as much of an impact on the overall race. I, I think there's almost more of an encouragement for states to try to crack down on populations if it's controlled by one party or mm-hmm. another to try to suppress the votes of the other party. Our current system, you just kind of get what you get, and I, to a certain extent, like for instance, with Abraham Lincoln's election. Uh, in 1860, you know, he only won with about 39 percent of the popular vote, mo- largely because, and he only got a, he had a right. fairly small vote. Right, but the Democratic uh, Party was split. I think three ways. Right, actually, but at the same time, a lot of Southern states basically there was no Abraham Lincoln on the ballot. You could right. you basically could, could. It was almost impossible to vote for Lincoln in some of those Southern states. So you could say that in many ways his popular vote was deeply suppressed mm-hmm. at the time. You know, we don't know what would have would have happened had he been on the ballot. So some of those places probably would have had at least some votes for Lincoln. So you could see how you know, yes, we have a state based system, but going to a national popular vote. Could end up with some uh, complications that a lot of Americans just, you know, right now it doesn't seem very apparent to them, but it does when you have a major disaster like that. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, the the other case, uh, eighteen eighty eight is a sort of a forgettable election. Uh, <laughs> Harrison and uh, Grover Cleveland. Uh, Harrison won that with the uh, lost the pop- national popular vote, won the electoral college. Um, Grover Cleveland didn't really care. He just came. <laughs> He just came back and won. <laughs> he just four went years back later, fishing. right? <laughs> yeah. Came back, won uh, in 1892, and yeah. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, 2000. Uh, I, 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 th- I think there, there's probably a better case uh, for complaints out of the 2000 race than the 2016 race. Florida, I mean, you, I think it, it came out the right way. Uh, the, every subsequent recount of Florida showed that Bush actually did win. Even if a very narrow margin, uh, thus winning the electoral college, uh, even though he lost to Al Gore five hundred thousand votes nationally. Um, uh, now, uh, even though that was a more narrow uh, victory for Al Gore than Hillary Clinton's two point five million uh, vote over Donald Trump, I think in the case of twenty sixteen, uh, twenty sixteen was a better example than two thousand as to why the electoral college is necessary uh, because. Hillary Clinton's almost her entire uh, her entire victory, popular vote victory, hinged on California. 
Um, <laughs> and some some in New York as well. But uh, um, if, if, if uh, I mean, there's actually been some studies on this. If you take California out of it, which which is sort of bizarre and, and <laughs> the thing to say, actually. But uh, if you take California out of the equation, Trump would have comfortably won the, the um, popular vote if California had voted for Hillary in the same proportion as right. other blue states voted for her right. on on average. Right. Uh, Trump would have probably won the popular vote. Very so uh, California just like voted for Hillary by something like 60 something percent, which which is odd. And, and there's high. a lot of factors to go into that because uh, one, uh, Republicans, as we mentioned earlier, Republicans were not motivated right. to vote uh, in, in that election because they, they knew their popular vote probably wouldn't count in California. Absolutely. Also, there were two Democrats, the second biggest race, uh, the U.S. Senate race, two Democrats were running against each right. other because right. of their odd primary system there. Um, so uh, so you had almost yeah. no incentive as a Republican right, right, besides right. just doing your civic yeah. duty uh, to go out and actually vote because your vote exactly, essentially exactly. was going to exactly. So, so, I mean, that, that buttressed her, uh, Hillary Clinton's vote totals in that state, which helped her uh, get such a high vote voter turnout and, you know, popular vote victory. In Absolutely. And we're going to actually talk to to an author who, as I said, literally wrote the book mm-hmm. on the Electoral College and kind of address some of the kind of attacks that we've seen in Electoral College now, some of the most uh, aggressive ones. So we're going to we're going to talk to her a little bit and address some of these kind of modern criticisms of the Electoral College. We are now joined by Tara Ross, who is the author of literally the book on the Electoral College. It's called The Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule. Thank you so much for joining us, Tara. Thanks for having me. So getting down to kind of the basics here, and we've discussed a little on this show what the Electoral College is about, but at its, at its core, why did the founders create the Electoral College for the United States? Well, I think to understand the Electoral College, you really need to understand the Constitution overall and what the founders were trying to do there. We hear politicians and whoever say things like, we're a democracy, we're spreading democracy around the world. (laughs) But you hear this kind of language all the time. But the founders would not have agreed with any of that. The founders did not think they were creating a a pure, simple democracy. Now, they did want to create something self-governing. They had just fought an entire revolution because they had no representation in parliament. So clearly, they were going to come out with something better where they felt like they had a seat at the table. However, they also knew, look, even if we had been given a seat in, in parliament, we still would have been the minority outvoted time and time again by the majority of citizens at home in England. We would have been tyrannized Still, it still would have been tyranny. So how do you do this? How do you create a a government that allows people to be self-governing and to make their own rules, but that also ensures that large minority groups, they would have been concerned at the time for small states, but how do you guarantee or or at least give give the small minority groups, the the large minority groups, a chance to to prevent that sort of tyranny and from being ruled by an emotional or, or a bare majority? And so they created a constitution that has checks and balances and separation of powers. And we, we've heard all of these things during our lives. But the, the, the Electoral College is a part of this package. It protects from tyranny of the majority. It protects from a bare or emotional majority 
just running over the rest of the country. Yeah, it seems to be the theme with the Electoral College, like with all the other systems in our lives. It really it's there to protect liberty itself. I mean, whether it's uh, you know it has elements of democracy, whether it doesn't, in some cases, as elements of federalism. I think it's a big part of the Electoral College. It's all basically creating a structure to preserve uh, the liberty of citizens, to to put to preserve self-government, uh, which seems to be at the core of what, what the founders believe. I, I do think it interesting because, of course, we talk about the role of democracy in these things. And, and in many cases, I mean, the Electoral College does have a, a healthy dose of democracy. Obviously, people sure. now uh, vote within their states. Uh, for for their electors who ultimately cast the vote for president, uh, so it does mm-hmm. seem to have democratic elements to it. It just doesn't have this kind of simple form of you know fifty plus one percent of a mass national plebiscite. It does, I think, it seems most critically pre- preserves that idea of federalism and the idea that you know the states actually matter within our system. Absolutely, and you hear people say the electoral college is undemocratic. It is not. The question is not democracy versus no democracy. The question is, will you take pure democracy, a direct popular vote, or will you take the Electoral College, which is democracy plus federalism? Mm -hmm. Now, I would argue that democracy plus federalism, state-by-state action, does more to protect the liberty of the people because it encourages presidential candidates to – you have to. You cannot just go to California and New York camp out, get as many votes as you want, and and win that way. You have to have cross-regional support. You have to have support across a wide variety of states. Otherwise, you cannot get the majority of states' electors that you need to win the election. Now, Hillary Clinton actually kind of proved that last time around. Um, She did get a majority of the individual popular vote, but she got 20% of that from only California and New York. That's not a healthy dynamic for a country as big and diverse as America. The founders knew this. And so the Electoral College, I think, has worked really, really well to serve the purposes of the founders. Uh, Tara, I, uh, this is Fred. I uh, wanted to ask you about, uh, you, you did have a chapter about how those five occasions where uh, the electoral vote and the popular vote split, uh, so that's kind of much ado about nothing. Uh, we talked mm-hmm. about that, those issues on the show. That That's sort of what gets the um, some of the public steamed as, as when uh, the electoral vote goes the other way. I wanted to talk to you, get get some of your thoughts about 1824, 1876, 1888, 2000, and what we just mm-hmm. mentioned, 2016, uh, why those were not uh, undemocratic. Well, so 1824 is, I, I think, really, people throw it in the pile, so I did too, but I, <laughs> I don't really think it's representative. It's okay. not representative of our system right now. There were lots of state legislatures that were not they were selecting the electors directly right, themselves. Right, right. There was no election no in the state. Right. right. So the truth of the matter is that we just don't know what how that election would have turned out. Right. Now, 1876 and 1888, you can really kind of clump them together. Okay. <laughs> and I, I mean, how, how I look at it actually is to look at the period after the Civil War and, and the period we're in now. And I think they're very analogous. But, okay, both times you have two elections where the winner of the national popular vote did not match the winner of the the Electoral College. Both times, you've got a country that's kind of divided in turmoil. Of course, after the Civil War, it was North versus South, and there was, you know, there was just lots of upset, <laughs> and maybe even dishonesty. And and now we're in a similar period where people are upset, and there's so much anger and division. Now, back then, in the 1876 and 1888, you know, those were the two elections where there was a discrepancy. But back in, in those decades, what ended up happening is because of the Electoral College, it was impossible for the nation to stay stuck in that 
horrible place. They couldn't. You know, Democrats really had to, they couldn't win an election unless they could figure out how to reach a hand across the aisle, at least far enough to get to some independence (laughs) and figure out how are we going to to get enough electors to win a presidential election. Now, Republicans had enough safe electors that they could, they could probably, I mean, they could win just relying on those people, but it wasn't very safe. And if Democrats got even one of their states, well, then they they weren't going to win after all. So they, they couldn't just sit there and rest on their you know, their previous victories, they had to work too. Right. And over so, time, so what you helped, saw... Helped unite both parties, the country after that, right. Right, both parties having to reach out to people on the other side. And, and, and I would argue that today, if we let it, just let it stay, <laughs> we mm. will end up in the same place. We will... We, Parties will have to figure out how to get past this anger, or they they won't be able to win. Yeah, it, it's something definitely, especially in you talk about you know 1876 election. There were a lot of irregularities at that time. There was, I mean, yeah. I think quite legitimately actual, voter suppression, voter suppression right? uh, the going on at that time. In some ways, it it goes to the, kind of the strengths of the electoral college too, because while in mm-hmm. certain states there was voter suppression, it was in some ways limited to that state, which was you know going to go you know Democrat or whatever it was at that time. It, that it kind of limits the damage that you can see. I mean. That's something that I think I definitely worry about seeing in the modern times. You have this both at the same time you have this move to abolish electoral college, and yet you have some states that are, for instance, trying to take President Donald Trump off the ticket. You know, you have some states like I think it was Delaware doing this. I mean, you know, that obviously changes. You know, what what exactly the vote totals are going to be at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. If it's just your three electoral college votes, it's just your three electoral college votes, uh, mm-hmm. no matter what the system is in your state. So it does seem like, uh, to a certain extent, the electoral college kind of contains like irregularities that we have in certain regions. I mean, I can only imagine, you know, how the recount would have been in Florida in 2000 if this was a national vote. I mean, if this we really had to go back and like recount all the votes in the country, I mean, you might still be counting those votes. And to a certain extent, having it just contained to Florida seems to really be a strength of our system. Again, it goes back to that idea of federalism, which I think it seems to be that you know most of the founders seem to have had this strong attachment to the idea of federalism. They weren't always in agreement with you know how our constitution was going to be. Some were more on the nationalist side, some like more power for the states. But it does seem to be a, a just a, a foundational uh, backing for why we have this system, why it, it works almost better for us today. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that? Oh, I, I agree completely. And the whole last three chapters of my book is about is about just that, like states being taking responsibility for themselves in the presidential election system and in really any part of, of our governance. But in the presidential election system, that decentralization really helps our process. Now, whether it's something like in 1876 that isolated the vote counts to, you know, it, it did isolate to, there were three states that had problems and there was one elector in one state. At least you only deal with those problems. You don't have to, 1876 could have been a huge nightmare <laughs> if <laughs> right, it had yeah. been na- a nationwide recount or a nationwide problem. Almost, 2000, right. which you mentioned, is the mm-hmm. same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Federalism really helps us quite a lot. Absolutely. Um, yeah, one, one thing I did want to ask about is this interstate compact that's being pushed. Uh, states of just this year, Colorado, New Mexico, Delaware have mm-hmm. passed it. Uh, that gets it up to 189 electoral votes, mm-hmm. up closer to the 270 needed for the compact to kick in. Uh, is this a big concern for you? And and do you think it would be constitutional since states can choose electors however they want to? I am concerned just because they keep chipping away. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for like a decade, and in the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
everybody laughed at it. This will never happen. <laughs> and, and now, like you mentioned, they got only three states. And by the way, they're not done yet. I mean, there's still right, other yeah. states that are in danger this year. They've got three so far this year. And that brings them up to 189. They are working hard to get it done in time for 2020. I still think that's a bit ambitious, but they're working hard. And I do not We think we can take for granted that it will get defeated. I think they could get the votes they need. As far as the constitutionality, they say that they can do it because of Article 2, which gives great discretion, which no one really disputes, gives states great discretion in how they're going to award their electors. Now, what I would add to that is, yes, states have great discretion, but they do not have such great discretion that they can violate another portion of the Constitution in the process. So, for instance, Texas, where I live, we could not say, oh, only men get to vote for our presidential electors. (laughs) That would violate the 19th Amendment. So in the same way, I would argue this compact, because they are using a compact, looks like a violation of Article 5, uh, the constitutional amendment process in the Constitution. Does Congress – isn't Congress usually in charge of also approving interstate compacts? I mean, Look, Congress I think Congress should act now, and I think Congress yeah. should say preemptively, we okay. will not approve this compact. Mm-hmm. Article 1, Section 10 it requires congressional approval, not that courts have diluted that, unfortunately, quite a lot. Mm-hmm. But I don't see why Congress couldn't step in right now, today, and say, hey, we see this coming down the pike, and we want, <laughs> we're not going to approve this thing. Article 1, Section 10, disapproved. Uh, the, the founder of this movement, he, he has tried to argue that He's a he's a lottery guy. <laughs> Made his fortune off uh, scratch off lottery tickets. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he's tried to argue that lotteries are interstate compacts. I I wouldn't think that's the, quite the same thing. But uh, I mean, from a legal standpoint, what what's your take on that? Well, it's, it's it hardly rises to the level of an end run around the constitutional amendment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think what I would say generally about the courts compact jurisprudence is I think it's way too watered down, and mm. they have let way too many things slide that should have been sent to Congress under Article 1, Section 10. But be that as it may, what they are doing here, even with those watered-down precedents, this is so different than anything that has preceded it. To think that you can change one of the fundamental compromises in the Constitution, I mean, that's crazy. And to think you can do it by signing a contract instead of just instead of getting the required supermajority of states to go along with your scheme, I mean, that's nuts. What yeah. could you not change in the Constitution if a compact? And then why there's there's actually I forget now if it's term if it's the term limits case or the line item veto. But one of them says, you know, why did the why did the founders spend months and months deliberating and compromising and working at the Constitutional Convention if you can just bypass it like that? You know, you like know, it's I, nothing. Uh, okay. Uh, when, and and one more point on this interstate compact is just that two of the states uh, of those three that I named Delaware and New Mexico. Um, they seem like they, they're they small states. That's the very type of state that the Electoral College is supposed to protect. Uh, um, does it seem like they're shooting themselves in the foot in that instance? I can never – I think so. I can never figure out why people think that you can change the – the strat, like the the goal, the the prize, the award of the the presidential election system. We're going to give the greatest prize to the person that gets the most individuals. But don't worry, they won't change their strategy to go to where the most individuals are. <laughs> don't worry, <laughs> like that's silly. <laughs> of course they will. I mean, if people people are motivated by the rules of any game, and so uh, strategies will change. And I think Hillary Clinton showed pretty persuasively that you can just go camp out in big parts, big urban areas in the country and get an awful lot of people to vote for you. The top four states have something like a third of the population. 
That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like, and you know, on top of that, I mean, I think there are a lot of constitutional issues with this compact. Also, just simply assigning the votes of your state to a population outside of your state, I think that would actually be unique within our system. You could even say that it disenfranchises the voters of the state and I think has complications with the 14th Amendment as well. So I think yeah. that I think it's it seems to have a lot of issues. It's interesting that they've moved tactics to the from the constitutional amendment to this compact, which has been around for a while. It seems like a, a really kind of reckless thing and something that likely will have a, a lot of problems in the courts. Of course, some have actually continued to push for the constitutional amendment, which seems the more, you know, obviously legitimate way. But I think because especially now uh, it seems unlikely that they're going to get kind of the the kind of large large majorities. I mean, the three quarter votes of the states to actually sign on to that. That that's pretty much a fool's errand at this point. So here we now have we're, we're at the uh, the point of trying to run, do an unrun around the Constitution. Uh, so one last question I wanted to ask you uh, because this is unfortunately this has come up a lot uh, as far as the kind of origin of the electoral college. You you hear this a lot from people, and I, I do think it's based in somewhat of historical ignorance. That the reason we have the electoral college is because of slavery. That that is essentially it's there to protect slavery, and it really there's there's little other historical explanation for why that is. Can you kind of address that and explain why the electoral college really has nothing to do with slavery? I mean, it's, it's if you can turn this the electoral college into just the, a relic of slavery and give it that label in people's minds it's so much easier to tear it down, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why this is happening. And they base every, their entire argument based on one quote from James Madison on one day in the convention. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you really read that day, by the way, it's just kind of this off-the-cuff, like yes. it's not even his main point. His main point that day was about separation of powers, and they were talking about, I think they were talking about like term limits for the president and, and legislative selection and, you know, how, how does you keep the president accountable? Do you want the same body to elect him and impeach him? And these are the kinds of conversations that they were having at the Constitutional Convention. And if you look at it, you don't ever look at the Constitutional Convention and see this division between slave and not slave states. You see a division between large and small and, and over and over again throughout the Constitutional Convention for all those months and weeks of debate. And by the way, some small states had slaves, some didn't. Some, you know, and the same thing with large. Some large states had slaves, some didn't. You don't, you see a big state like Virginia, you know, having a big state opinion. (laughs) (laughs) And they had slaves. You don't see them. And and Delaware, you know, you see Delaware, Gunning Bedford had the greatest quote. It's my favorite. He looks at all these large states and he says, I do not trust you, gentlemen. If you had the power, (laughs) the abuse of it could not be checked and you would exercise it to our destruction. Well, Gunning Bedford worked against slavery in his lifetime. So it's just, you it's just not there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you read the convention, the, the notes of the debates, you, you see small states not trusting large states and those delegates trying to figure out how to balance that in a big country. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's that's something I noticed, too, from that Madison quote, that, that the people try to connect it to slavery. It, it's it's very ambiguous, too, as far as whether he thinks actually the Electoral College would benefit or, or you know, be you know positive or negative to the slaveholding states. It's very unclear of what he's actually trying to get at in that quote. And to say that the whole institution was created to protect slavery based on that one somewhat ambiguous line from Madison is, in my opinion, beyond yeah. a stretch. If you actually mm-hmm. read through the debates... Uh, and the consensus that they they built to create the electoral college, which actually it seems, I mean, as Hamilton even noted, was one of the the least controversial things at the convention. I mean, the founders 
you know, the framers obviously disagreed on a whole lot. This is one of the things that they seem to come to a broad consensus over. Uh, to 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 link it to slavery seems to be, in my opinion, it seems to be a very dishonest uh, injection into this modern debate that we have over the electoral college. It's it's kind of a, a dishonest history. You know, CNN, you know, running quotes showing. James Madison calling the Electoral College evil, which had nothing yeah. to do with it. I mean, that's just really kind of dishonest history. And it, it is good to see some clearing up. I know some have, like Sean Wilentz, who I believe is a Princeton professor, uh, has actually recently apologized in the New York Times for kind of helping to spread this idea that it was based on slavery, he actually retracted in his book that it was. And I, I would say good for him, but it's really unfortunate, especially here on cable news, things like this, this kind of connection, which is uh, really does a deep disservice. If you want to argue that you don't like it, you want a national popular vote, fine. But to, to link it to slavery, uh, I don't, it must be frustrating for you, Terry, because I mean, you are somebody who is, I mean, I would say the expert in electoral college to hear this time and again, this kind of honestly dis, dishonest history. <laughs> I just think that he who controls the terms of the debate often wins it. You know, we've seen this in lots of issues in our lifetime. And so I, they are trying to do that now with the Electoral College. If we can call it, it's just, it's a relic of slavery. It's got, it's, you know, outdated, whatever. It defended this institution that we, we all don't like anymore. I mean, anybody would dislike an institution like that. Of course you would. Right. But it's, got, it, it's just not true. Right. It's, it's simply not true. All right. Well, thank you so much, Tara, for, yeah, for calling thanks. into the program. We do really much uh, appreciate you enlightening our readers. And I do suggest uh, our listeners, and I do suggest them pick up your book, The Indispensable Electoral College. I mean, really, if you want to know the, really the foundations of what the Electoral College is, you really can't pick up a better book. You can't enlighten yourself uh, more than if you read this. So thank you so much for all the work that you've done on this. Oh, thank you. Thanks to everyone for joining us for The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you are further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman, and Fred's Twitter, at FredLucasWH. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jared Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.